Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So I'm here in Streatham with Chuka Amuna, who's going to be talking to me about the new cross-party group, which he is co-chair of on EU relations. Chuka, this group, Talk me through what you're hoping to achieve with it. Is it simply trying to halt Brexit? Is it trying to change the government's approach to it? Is it trying to get more cross-party working? What's the thinking behind it? Well, welcome to Streatham, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the railway pub in the centre of the universe that is Streatham. (laughs) Um, uh, The the three uh, principles that unite everybody who's involved with the all-party parliamentary group on EU relations is, first of all, we all believe that it would be absolutely appallingly awful for us to leave the European Union without a deal, without any arrangement at all. Secondly, um, we believe that all options should be in the table in this negotiation. Uh, For me, that means, you know, customs union membership and single market membership should be on the table. For some people, it's one or not the other or both. But generally speaking, everybody agrees that we should have options, as many options as possible on the table. And thirdly, we want to see the closest possible um, working relationship with the EU going forward. Now, I think the general election clearly uh, gave an instruction to Parliament. Uh, The referendum last year uh, gave the public's view on whether we should stay in or out, uh, and the majority of the participants in that referendum voted for us to leave, but there was nothing more in terms of a mandate that was given to us on how we leave. Theresa May put forward her proposition, which I believe would take us in a job-destroying withdrawal of the European Union. It would take us in that direction, which I think would be bad for my community here. She put that to the public, and she didn't get a mandate. And the result of the general election has been a fairly kind of inconclusive result. And I think that is an instruction to politicians of different parties to work together in the national interest to work a way forward through this Brexit process. And it's with that in mind that the... EU relations uh, APPG has been formed and the beauty of it is is that we have uh, you know people who come from all the different parties six of the main parties in the House of Commons. Before we get on to the amendment which you you put down to the the Queen's speech you talk about in the APPG you talked about their customs union uh, the single market how is staying in the customs union and or staying in the single market leaving the European Union surely if you stay in either of those things we haven't left and you haven't honoured the result of the referendum. Well, I disagree with that. Um, Turkey is, to all intents and purposes, part of the customs union, but it isn't a member of the European Union. Norway and other countries are part of the single market, and they also are not in the European Union. So um, by dint of being a member of those things, it does not necessarily mean that you have to be in the European Union. And my argument in all of this has been that, look, those other countries I've just mentioned uh, can provide a guide but we are the United Kingdom. We are the fifth biggest economy in the world. We're the second biggest military power in Europe. We have huge soft power around the globe. 
So that's just, you know, what other countries got. It's just a guide. But we should be ambitious and confident in what we can get. And clearly, you know, we want to see some reforms in the relationship between us and our EU partners. I think we should be aiming to retain as many of the benefits that we get at the, at the, at the moment with those and get those reforms. And we should be confident about our ability to do that. We shouldn't be waving the white flag and throwing in the towel before um, the negotiations have even started. But surely, if you look to something like Norway, um, they have to abide by the rules of the single market. They don't get a say in those rules. Surely the more competent thing to do would be completely leave the single market, completely leave the customs union, get out there on our own and, and sort of embrace the fact that we can be free of all these things. Surely that's the bravest thing to do. No, I disagree with that. And, and, and you know, this argument is made that, look, we should be pursuing opportunities outside of the European Union. That should be our focus. And we can put our kind of trading relationship with the EU on the back burner or just presume that we're going to get the exact same benefits going forward. Well, we're not going to get the exact same benefits going forward if we leave the European Union single market and customs union. Uh, the chief negotiator for the EU has just said that. So we need to stay part of those two bodies once we've left the European Union if we want to get the exact same benefits. But if you're a business, you don't just ignore your existing customers to pursue new opportunities. It's not an either or scenario for me. We should be seeking to do both those things. And let's not forget, I mean, on this argument on sovereignty and whether we, you know, if we're out of the European Union, we have to accept all the rules. Well, people ignore the fact that there is a consensus that we want to continue selling into the European um, Union single market area. If we want to do that, we're going to have to comply with their good standards and rules than the rest of them if we want to sell our goods into those markets. We are much more likely to be able to influence the way those rules and those standards work if we're in the single market than if we're out of it. And like I said, I mean, you talk about Norway, they're a guide. We are the United Kingdom, 65 million people. Norway are nothing like our size in economy or population. So we should be much more ambitious and confident in what we can achieve. One of the things that you've already done since the general elections, you put down an amendment to the Queen's speech. Some people saw this, I think it was described as virtue signaling. Um, what was your reaction to that? Because this amendment prompted people being sacked from the Labour front bench barely a couple of weeks after the general election in which the Labour Party were on the high. So well, really, yeah. really, you're contributing to splitting the party already, aren't you? This, look, this, this isn't about the leader of the Labour Party. It is not about the Labour Party. Uh, for me, this issue goes far beyond party and far beyond any particular individual. It goes to the future of our nation. And you have to put the national interest first in that situation. Now, personally, I mean, I think it was the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury, who accused the 70-odd parliamentarians who voted in the Queen's speech for amendments um, to keep us in the single market and the customs union. We were accused of virtually virtue signalling. Well, you know, for me, that's disappointing. Uh, when Emily uh, posted a picture of an England flag um, when she was a shadow attorney general on Twitter and there was an avalanche of comment about what she was signalling by doing so. I didn't come out and criticise her and jump on the bandwagon. I actually dropped her a line to check that she and her family were okay given the barrage of comment and uh, uh, criticism she was attracting at that point. And I suppose I'm disappointed because frankly when you do things that you believe are right uh, on a principled basis you at least I think can expect to have the benefit of the doubt of some of your colleagues. 
but actually it's also quite disrespectful of all those people who voted to keep us in the single market and also the customs union and you know a lot of people did this because they had a very strong constituency interest um, you know personally I represent Streatham which scored the highest remain vote in the referendum in the country uh, I went around this community during the general elections saying I would fight to keep us in the single market and the customs union if I was re-elected and I like many other colleagues were faced with a situation where the Liberal Democrats had put down a Liberal Democrat amendment to keep us in the single market and the customs union and there was no Labour amendment doing the same so there was a choice as to whether you vote for the Liberal Democrat amendment or the better thing to put together a Labour-led cross-party amendment which uh, a substantial number of Labour politicians obviously supported but also was backed by the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and others who added their name to the amendment, put that forward so we could vote on a Labour, on a Labour amendment. Now, you know, you could say the timing wasn't fantastic and, you know, uh, Tom Watson, our great deputy leader, who, you know, gently scolded me, I suppose, <laughs> for given the timing. Um, but in the end, we don't get to choose the timing of the Queen's speech when the government puts forward its agenda. And the bottom line is the clock is ticking on this issue. Uh, we have a backstop date of March 2019. And if you don't actually vote and make the argument in Parliament now, you could say, OK, we'll leave it to the autumn. And then the question would be in the autumn, well, look, you know, Labour has had a very successful conference, which I think we will have. Party, you know, government in waiting. Oh, we can't, you know, have this argument now. We can't make the point now. You then trip forward into the new year. Oh, but it's the start of a new year. We can't. And then before you know it, we're less than a year out from the backstop date when these negotiations will finish. And we won't have started making the argument Wouldn't as to why we have to stay a member of the single market. Access to it is just not good enough. Wouldn't it have been better for you to have these discussions behind closed doors with the Labour front bench, with Keir Starmer, and to do it through the shadow Brexit secretary? So this could have been an amendment which the whole party could have gathered around. Surely doing it on the back bench, acting like you yeah. did, you were just you were just deliberately trying well, to look, provoke the front bench. Hang, hang just a minute. This was not me. Um, uh, in the end, it was a collective decision by a group of MPs who felt very strongly about this. I agreed to have my name as the the, the lead name on the amendment, and uh, you know. I, was, I knew I was going to get flack for that, but I was happy to take it in the interest of all um, concerned. But as I said, the bottom line is we don't get to choose a timing on this. There have been a huge number of discussions with our front bench on um, our position on the single market. And you know, over you know, 18 uh, members of parliament co-sponsored a pamphlet during the election campaign saying that we would be fighting for single market membership and customs union membership. Nobody told us off for that. Everybody accepted that we needed to make those commitments to ensure that our constituents had confidence to re-elect us. Um, admittedly, it was a lot of MPs in London who represent a lot of Remain constituencies um, like mine. But uh, the other thing that I think has been ignored is that actually all of the 50, uh, in terms of the amendment in the House of Commons, all of that 50 voted for the front bench amendment too. Um, the issue was that we wanted to go further and talk about membership. And there is a big difference between accessing the single market and being a member of it. Um, 
if you access it, well, any country outside of the European Union can access it with a free trade agreement, and you are talking only in that situation about tariffs on goods and services that we sell into the European Union. But that ignores the fact that the single market, when you're a member of it, is a massive motor for social justice and also helps to send austerity in this country. Uh, it is, you know, to argue against membership at this stage before negotiations have started is incompatible with ending austerity in our country. We know from research that if we stop being a member and say we go to having a free trade agreement, you could end up with a £30 billion plus hit to the exchequer. So in that context, it's going to be very hard to end austerity. And secondly, if you stop being a member, you walk away from this framework of rules and regulations that protect people's rights at work, protect your employment law, protect the environmental regulations, protect the consumer. If we stop being a member and just go for access, we are walking away from that framework of rules which promotes social justice. We could, we could adopt those framework of rules ourselves. It's not to stop us as an independent nation state mm. doing those things. But that's a fair point. But let's get real about this. <clears throat> These issues that we talk about, protections at work, protection of the consumer, protection of the environment, this is not something the UK can as effectively on its own protect as it can working through this club of nations. So take the most recent example. Google have just been fined £2.1 billion by the EU Commission for, fr frankly, rigging an online marketplace in its favour. That's what it was accused of doing. And the EU Commission acting, the UK being part of it, against Google is far much more effective than England, Britain, sorry, the UK sitting on its own in a corner trying to get a big global multinational like Google that operates across borders, getting it to actually operate in a way that's fair, fair to consumers. Google's much more likely to take notice of this club of 27 member states, single market, half a billion consumers. And that's the point. If we really want to stop unfettered capitalism and globalisation running riot and destroying so many communities, and we've seen that far too much across the UK, which is partly what, you know, frankly, was behind the Brexit vote, then we have got to work with other countries to do this. And we can do that in the single market. And that's why membership of this thing actually matters. Now, it might be, maybe at the end of the process we won't be able to get membership, but my argument is let's keep that option on the table and argue for it. And a final thing to say on this is that the demand of government has been, look, you said in the words of David Davis you would get the exact same benefits in this negotiation as single market and customs union membership. Michel Barnier, the EU negotiator, was absolutely clear last week. You cannot get those things, those exact same benefits and frictionless trade if you leave the single market and the customs union. You have to stay a member of both if you want those things. But Michel, well, the European Union leaders, people like Angela Merkel, have also said that if you're in the single market, you have to buy by the four freedoms, one of which, of course, is freedom of movement. That's right. Now, you've said in the past, um, you've said that you, you wanted to see this change to sort of fair movement. Yeah. Um, you've also said, I think it was in 20, uh, 2016, you said if continuation of free movement is the price of single market membership, then clearly we couldn't remain in the single market. Yeah. But so, you, but and, and you're quoting yourself to me well, now, oh, you, you and to of, me. Course, of course you put to me the hypothetical that we continue with free movement totally unreformed in its current it's form. Hang just a minute, hang, hang just a minute, you're it's talking about, hang on just a minute, hang on just a minute. You were talking and putting the hypothetical to me that free movement as it operates now cannot be changed. Now, clearly if you had no changes whatsoever then it would be very hard to move forward. 
But what this ignores, and I'm not saying you were ignoring it, you put a hypothetical to me, but what that as a proposition ignores is that, first of all, free movement is not unconditional at the moment. It is conditional. And secondly, as things stand at the moment, as a full member of the European Union, we can restrict free movement, and we haven't. So if you come to this country and you don't have work uh, after three months and there's no prospect of you getting work, then you can be asked to leave. We do not require people to do that. And of course, there are, if I look at other examples, there are other countries that say are members of the single market which have been allowed to introduce quotas on the number of EU citizens coming and under the EU treaties, if for good public policy reasons, you can restrict the way that free movement works. So free movement is one of the free movements, one of the, the, the three freedoms as it were, um, is, you know, there's a problem there, problem there because the name is totally misleading because it isn't free movement. It is conditional free movement that you have in the European Union and we can move towards that now if we want but we've chosen not to. It sounds to me like you're interpreting a slight nuance on people that actually what people were voting for when they voted to leave you it sounds like you're suggesting they were voting for a stronger implementation of the rules we currently have but many people would say no many no, people what, would what? say that 300,000 net migration is too high a figure mm. they want it to come down we simply can't do that well, within I think, the EU. I think what all the research market. shows is that the key issue here is not so much numbers, and I don't deny that numbers matter, but it is control. A sense of us having more control over the system. And my argument is we can have more control over the system if we want to now, but so far we have chosen not to. That's the point that I'm making here. What's the Labour Party's front bench position on Brexit? Because I'm confused, and I wondered if you, if you are as confused as I am. Well, Jeremy, I think has been absolutely right to say that we cannot leave the European Union in a way that will make us poorer and that he wants to put jobs first. I think that's totally the right position for the Labour Party. Keir Starmer has highlighted the ridiculous dog's dinner that Theresa May has made in protecting EU citizens' rights, people who are the three million odd EU citizens who are here, but also the just under two million people who live and or work in the European Union from the UK. So I think, broadly speaking, the, the party is in the right place. All I would like is for us to go further and be stronger in our opposition to the Prime Minister taking uh, customs union membership and single market membership off the table at the start of negotiations. And like I said, you know, my amendment had nothing really to do with the Labour Party, everything to do with the principle and these Brexit negotiations. If there was any target here, it was Theresa May more than anyone else. But, but surely you must understand why people in the Labour Party who were buoyed by the successes they saw in the general mm. election were so frustrated to have a, an amendment put down which provoked resignations and sackings, whatever, well, from actually, the I was actually, sure, the irony is actually, I was, I was actually encouraged, well I say I, like I said, it was my, my name was just the lead name on the amendment, um, but we were actually encouraged by front benchers and the front benchers who resigned uh, were you know acutely aware of what would happen if this thing was put to a vote and they did and they voted against the whip but they were relaxed about that because for them it was a point of principle uh, and I think if there's anything that I've learned from <laughs> Jeremy is that you've got to do what you believe is right even if occasionally that's going to ruffle a few feathers in your own party and he's done that a lot more than me over the years because he's been in Parliament a lot longer than me um, I've not um, defied the whip very often at all. I've only dose, done so, I think, three times, and it's only been on the EU issue. And I have been consistent on this issue. When I left the Shadow Cabinet in 2015 by mutual agreement, I had a conversation with Jeremy, 
and uh, we couldn't agree on the party's position on the EU then. Uh, my view and our discussion very much was whatever Cameron came back with in the renegotiation, my view is that I thought the party had to be arguing very strongly for us to stay in the European Union because uh, that is what I believed and still, you know, believed was the absolutely right thing and best thing for this community. He thought that we should reserve our position pending the renegotiation and I couldn't agree to that. And so we both, it was out of that that we both agreed it probably wouldn't be sensible for me to stay in the shadow cabinet because of that difference in view. So it's not like for me this, this you know, issue goes way back to um, 2015. I've been entirely consistent on it. One of the big offers under discussion at the moment is the offer on EU citizens' mm. rights that Theresa May's made. Now, I think from your own family, you've got quite sort of family ties to the European Union, haven't you? So I guess yeah. does this make it even more personal? <laughs> well, it does. It's not. I mean, look, I've always said uh, I was accused of being vain on this stuff, and it's not about me, but it does have an effect on my on my family. I've got a, a, a half Danish nephew. I have a Danish brother-in-law. I have a French aunt, French cousins, and I'm part Irish, and I have a load of family in Ireland. So this issue about EU citizens, both UK citizens in other EU countries and EU citizens here, has a direct impact on my family. Absolutely. But the, but the offer that Theresa May made, I mean, it seemed to me to be quite reasonable. If you're already here, you get the right to stay here. Um, well, there, was, there was a few things, you know, like losing, losing the vote in local elections, sure, which I think definitely should be looked at again. I think the issue that the... Well, look, I think a way's got to be found... A way forward's got to be found on this. And I think the issue that the, the Europeans had is that if, after we leave, an arrangement is reached, they want to give our citizens, who are in other EU countries, like my sister, frankly, in Denmark, uh, the same status and rights as they have at the moment. So they're not like second-class citizens, but they're equal citizens almost in, the in their countries. And the, the proposal coming from our um, government was that in respect of their citizens here in the UK, they believe that their citizens will be treated as second-class citizens under her proposal. So she's going to have to move if there's going to be agreement reached on this particular issue. There's also a bit of an, a technical issue about the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and who oversees um, uh, the, the enforcement of mm. EU citizens' rights. But they've got to be, look, there has to be a way forward found on this. It's deeply, deeply unsettled. But the, European, but the EU have got to move a little bit on this yeah, as well, yeah. right? Surely. It's, well, not, it's not all about Britain. Of course, of course, I agree with that. And, and that's the nature of a negotiation. But I just say, you know, uh, we're, we're down the road where we're sitting here in this pub from a few of my primary schools. Uh, my primary schools, primary schools <laughs> that I represent, I don't know. Um, and uh, I tell you, I've never seen an issue provoke such an emotional and strong reaction as Brexit. Um, usually when I go and do all the summer school fairs, which, you know, this is a summer school fair season, you don't really talk about political issues. But I've had uh, mothers, grandmothers, family members of children at schools coming to me quite tearful over this whole issue. Um, uh, not just uh, what is going to happen to me and my family, the, the, the non-British the non citizens and my family who are here, you know, real worry and stress around this issue. I mean, it's absolutely, this is the reality. What are they worried about? They're it's worried that they won't be able to stay here. They're worried that they're going to be treated like second-class citizens. And don't forget, this comes off the back of an incredibly hostile media environment towards immigrants, per se. There is a sense amongst a lot of people from other EU countries who live here that they're not wanted, that they are seen as the kind of root of all the problems of our society, which I think is a real damning indictment of us. 
um, that we have made people feel like this in our own country who, you know, the overwhelming majority of whom work damn hard, who've helped keep our NHS going. There are 1.5 million people working EU citizens' businesses in our country who bring a huge amount to our local economies. I think it's dreadful that they've been made to feel like this. Do you get a feeling, do you get a sense that perhaps on the kind of left of politics, in the <coughs> trade union movement in particular, there is a feeling now that actually we shouldn't be campaigning just to stay in the single market and the customs union. We should be campaigning to stay in the EU. Do you get, is, is that the kind of... Well, I think there's some really interesting things going on in the broader Labour movement on this. Um, I mean, if you looked at the amendment that I tabled in the House of Commons, there was a similar one tabled the day before, not coordinated, by the way, in any way, shape or form, in the House of Lords. Um, and again, the whip there was to abstain on the amendment, but a substantial number of Labour Lords actually voted um, for it. And the, those who voted for it included the former General Secretary of um, what is now Unite, who then was the T TNG, Bill Morris, Lord Bill Morris, John Monks, the former General Secretary of the TUC, um, you know, leading human rights activist Helena Kennedy, a leading NHS um, clinician, Lord Winston, all of these people and others voted uh, against the whip for an amendment to keep us in the single market and the customs union. And if you looked at the people who voted for the one in the, in the Commons, again, quite a broad cross-section of the Labour Party from the left to the, to the centre, um, which I thought was very interesting. And amongst the trade unions, well, the TUC's position is that the government should keep all options on the table, including customs union mem membership and single market membership. And that's not surprising. I mean, I'm a member of Unite. Um, and uh, I think the United General Secretary was rather critical of my amendment, which surprised me, actually, because if you look at um, the members of our union, uh, Unite, I visited uh, Unite workers um, at Airbus in um, Wales, and you look at what Airbus has said about how important staying in the single market is to their business and those workers' jobs, or you look at GM Vauxhall um, in Ellesmere Port. Again, I visited there and met with um, the Unite conveners and workers there, and membership of the single market is absolutely um, vital um, to those workers' jobs as well. Um, but um, so I was, I was kind of a, a bit puzzled by, by the criticism I attracted, but actually really interesting development over the last few days. Manuel Cortes, the General Secretary of TSSA, I think you on HuffPost, mm. you took a piece from him uh, where he was saying, look, we've got to stop hiding behind the bush and get out there and argue about the benefits that free movement, which as I've said is, is not a unconditional thing, um, the benefits that it brings. But he's actually gone a step further. He is now saying, he has said that all those you know, who've been making the argument for single market membership and customs union membership in the, in the Labour Party said that we're being far too feeble. And actually what we should be arguing for now is for us to stay in the European Union altogether. Well, is that what you're so, going to start arguing for then? I guess that, well, that I leads on. I don't think, and Manuel you know, is absolutely right to pose the challenge to us, and I think what he said is bold and very interesting. I don't think you can get ahead of the public on this. Um, I think if there's any sense that we are just seeking to overturn the referendum result from 2016, then I think that would be quite damaging in terms of people's trust in democracy. Um, but where this, thing's, this thing ends up, I've got absolutely no idea. But I'm not quite in the position that he's in. Where it ends up, could it be a second referendum? Could it be a referendum on the deal? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'm very nervous about referenda, partly because I think it, you know, you, you set up two parts of democracy against each other. I, you know, really, really struggled. Uh, it's like the most 
difficult decision I think I've made in politics to vote to trigger Article 50 because my view was was that Parliament had chosen to give the power to the people to determine whether or not we stay in the European Union and whether or not to invoke Article 50. Um, we'd chosen to transfer that kind of power and decision not to be made by Parliament but to be made by the people. So I felt once the people had made that decision, and you can argue about the percentage of people who participated and all that, but once we decided to kind of pass that decision back to the people, I felt it was very hard for Parliament collectively to, to kind of you know, turn away from the decision that had been made. Um, but the problem with that was it was juxtaposing the mandate to invoke Article 50 that came from the referendum against um, the mandates that we had from our uh, communities to represent them. And uh, I feel more comfortable, <laughs> and I think it's easier, particularly when, in my situation, my community took a juxtaposing uh, view to the national result. I think it's just better. I, I prefer these things to be done by the House of Commons myself. Before the EU amendments and that kind of stuff, you were doing a lot of work on integration, the APPG mm. on social integration. Um, and it came up with some, some interesting uh, analysis. One of the recommendations was making it more of a requirement for people to speak English, making it more help for immigrants to speak English. Are you going to do any more work on integration? Do you think that agenda's, that's fallen off the agenda a little bit now? No, I think it's more important than ever. I think what the EU referendum has exposed but has been reinforced by the general election is just how divided our country is. Um, the polarised nature of the debate around the general election and the 50-50 nature of the result and this return to two-party politics I think illustrates just how polarised and divided our country still is. And frankly, uh, it's not just that I think there is an electoral imperative for the Labour Party to get into this agenda and have something to say about it. I think we have a moral duty. Um, because traditionally we have always been the party that represents all different groups in society and brings them together around common values because values are key for me. So um, we definitely will be doing more work on this. The um, all-party parliamentary vote on social integration is going to continue in this parliament. We will be bringing out our final report on integration and immigration over the summer and then we are going to probably, we're exploring what we're going to look into next, but probably look into generational um, divisions and the need to better integrate different age groups. Because you could see both during the EU referendum, but also this general election, certainly in political terms, just how, how polarised the generations were. I think, you know, the older you are, the more likely you were to vote to leave the European Union. The older you were at this general election, the more likely you were to vote for the Conservatives as opposed to the um, Labour Party and vice versa in both instances and it was just like a straight line on a graph. Um, I think that's an incredibly unhealthy um, situation that we find ourselves in so um, the work of the integration APPG will definitely go on. During the election campaign Jeremy Corbyn talked about how he wanted to unlock the potential of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. I know some Tory MPs from those backgrounds found that to be uh, maybe not offensive but sort of quite distasteful. What did you make of that? Do you think that was an appropriate way for Jeremy Corbyn to talk about representing people from those communities? Of course. Uh, I'm, I'm bloody glad that my leader is ambitious and wants to see black and minority ethnic communities which are all very different. Uh, you know, going on to succeed and us seeing more people of colour in different fields, is in it, is different it for positions. Is it Corbyn to unlock that? Because a lot of the Tories would say... Well, I don't, think, I don't think he was purporting that it was for him to unlock. 
But I think what he was saying is that for the Labour Party, that is going to be an important priority. And, you know, over the years, we've always had people in the Conservative Party uh, poo-pooing and denigrating uh, measures that we've been campaigning for and arguing for to increase equality of opportunity for people in this country. That's nothing new. Of course, they're going to lambast us. Um, but of course, you've got to do something about it. And Jeremy is absolutely clear that a government that he leads will do something about it. And, would, and we're recording this the day after the Anne-Marie Morris comments. Um, what did you make of those when you heard them? I mean, obviously, you tweeted about it, but... I mean, <laughs> just speechless. Speechless? This is, like, this is 2017. <laughs> you know, not 1917, 2017. And you have a Conservative Member of Parliament coming out with that kind of thing. And I think the thing is, is that she may have said it <laughs> was, um, she may have said that it was unintentional. But when you listen to the audio, she just kind of says it in a throwaway fashion. You know, this almost as if it's a part of her everyday kind of, you know, chat. Um, absolutely appalling. Do you think she should be, I mean, the whip's been withdrawn. Would you like to see any other action taken against her? Well, let's see. I mean, I, I have to say, I haven't, uh, I, I saw that the whip was withdrawn uh, just after actually a number of people had commented on this. Um, but I think let's see what the, you know, what explanation she gives. I think her problem here is, is that it's just quite revealing, really. And uh, is she apologising because she got caught? Is she apologising because she recognised that the sentiment was wrong? Mm. And um, so I think, you know, essentially it's a matter for the Conservative Party, but I know my party, there'd be no place for that at all. Even with some of the comments, you know, Ken Livingston, for example, the anti-Semitism comments, he was suspended but not expelled. Well, no, I've been very clear on yeah. what I think about that, and uh, um, I was one of the uh, members of the Home Affairs Select Committee that produced the report into anti-Semitism in the UK, which, of course, covered anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So I don't think anybody can accuse me of, you know, having one rule for Labour people on these things and another rule for Conservative people on, on these things. I, you know, I was attacked, as were the other Labour members of the Home Affairs Select Committee, for putting our name to a report that called out the anti-Semitism that has been going on in the Labour Party. And just finally, obviously Labour didn't win the election, despite what some people uh, some people act, mm. but they did a lot better than oh, expected. Wonderful. You were one of the people, you weren't the only one of course, mm. who you know, wasn't 100% supportive of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Uh, we, how, did you just get it wrong? I mean, did you owe mm. Jeremy any apology? Should you be going and knocking his door and saying, I'm sorry Jeremy, I was confused <laughs> about this? Well, I suppose I wish in a way that we'd, we'd, we'd kind of campaigned in the way that we did at this general election. Um, during the e referendum campaign, and that's why I was so critical, and I voted for the no confidence motion immediately after the referendum because I felt that we could have done more, and that the leadership could have done more to keep us in the European Union. And like I said, again and again, this is the issue. I just think this is like the biggest issue in British politics in a generation. It's not just any old issue. This affects everything, our capacity to end austerity, to invest in our NHS. By the way, where is that £350 million extra <laughs> per week that they said were going to the NHS to, you know, promote social justice? It goes, this thing goes to the very core of what it is to be a Labour person. And so, for me, it was just my sheer fury that I felt, we, you know, we just hadn't done nearly enough to make the case for our membership of the European Union during that referendum. And that, that was the thing that led me to vote. Um, for the no confidence motion, but definitely there's no doubt about it that we ran a you know great national campaign during the general election. Uh, Jeremy is never better than when he's on the stump campaigning. He is just absolutely formidable at it. 
very comfortable and at ease. It's his natural home. And you compare and contrast that to Theresa May, who looked uncomfortable in her own skin, uncomfortable around people. And the result, you know, the, the effect of Jeremy leading such a strong national campaign, and there also been fantastic local campaigns across the um, country by Labour, parties, Labour, constituency parties. The result of that was to uh, deprive Theresa May of the mandate she was looking for, for her extreme form of Brexit, and has changed the arithmetic in the House of Commons so that we can stop a hard Brexit. And so if I was angry that we hadn't done enough to remain, our leadership hadn't done enough to remain last year, that has been kind of redressed and rebalanced by the fact that such a strong national campaign this year has enabled us to stop Theresa May in her tracks in terms of pursuing a withdrawal from the European Union, which I believe would destroy people's jobs, destroy their livelihoods, turn Britain into Europe's sweatshop, and basically be a, you know, some grand super tax haven for very wealthy individuals and corporations. And that isn't the vision of Britain that I think we want. And the effect of such a strong national campaign means that we can act as a block on that. So, you know, that's why I said, you know, immediately after the election result, you know, you've got to hand it to Jeremy, he did a fantastic job here and he has my absolute support. So you would like to see him carrying on that momentum, that campaigning yes. zeal, divert that towards the European Union negotiations. Is that what you'd like to see? Well, I would see? like, well, the immediate short-term thing is, is, is we've got to stop this hard, destructive form of Brexit and, in my view, provide the strongest possible effective opposition against Theresa May's hard Brexit. Um, you know, that, as I said, has always been the target in this. And then, of course, in the medium to long term, uh, the big challenge for our party is to now make another big leap forward. We need a swing equal to, if not greater than the one we just had towards Labour at the next general election to make the 64 gains I think we need to make to win a majority and get Labour into government. And I've, you know, for me, I've, I've never been one of those people who, um, who believes that there is a choice to be made between principles and power. There is no point uh, getting power for power's sake. You've got to have it for principled reasons to implement your values. You can't implement those values in a really big way like we did in this community during the 90s and noughties unless you get into government. And so that has got to be our goal. Um, and we've got to approach it with a degree of humility. Yes, we got a good result in this general election, but we didn't win it. That's just passed. So uh, we've got to approach. We've got to recognise that, but also not ignore the fact that we've made a, a, a big leap forward, and that's something to celebrate, in my view. That's great. Thanks, Chuka. Much appreciated. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 